Irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Hi there. Welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. I'm a licensed clinical social worker practicing as an intuitive psychotherapist. I'm additionally certified in EMDR and Reiki Level 2. You can find me online at my website, which is nolatherapy.com, the abbreviation for New Orleans, Los Angeles Therapy. You can book sessions online, and we can meet by Skype, FaceTime, phone, or in person at either my Los Angeles or New Orleans offices. And you can subscribe to this show and watch archived episodes on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. My guest today, I think, is an important – it's an important topic that he has written about, along with his daughter, having to do with addiction, alcoholism, and drug abuse. Since it is the holiday season, it's, it's I think, one of the most celebratory times of the year with Hanukkah, Christmas, other traditions, then New Year's right behind it. So I think people with addictions or people with abuse problems, dependency upon alcohol and drugs, it can be a really scary time on how to manage those holiday parties, office parties, et cetera, family, friends coming together. So I am going to bring on, in just a moment, Mark Treitler. He is a father, a corporate attorney, and an author. And his book that we're talking about today is titled, My Dad is an Alcoholic. What about me? It's a preteen guide to conquering addictive genes. And one of his goals, which we're going to talk about, is about introducing materials for adolescents to educate themselves about addiction, about the genetic components that can be activated without one's knowledge until they take a drink or use a drug. And then the quickly debilitating effects that can happen. So he wants to teach kids and adolescents to have this foundation of knowledge to make better informed decisions about how they might interact or choose not to interact with drugs and alcohol. So welcome, Mark. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for the kind introduction. You're so welcome. Where, you know, and I want to tell our listening audience also that your daughter, Leanna, uh, helped you co-author this book when she was just 12 years old. She did. Every chapter has a uh, portion written by Liana, and I, you know, I, I really didn't have anything to do with that part. She has some amazing insight into uh, the disease, peer pressure, you know, and uh, as you notice, she uh, incorporated some of her favorite uh, Bible verses into uh, in some of the messages. She did. And and to write from that perspective of a child, which I know when we talk more about your story is one of the things that got you to get into treatment, you know, to begin your recovery process was seeing how your addiction affected her and your son. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, as we'll probably talk about, fortunately, uh, I was lucky enough to have something, uh, just a couple sentences she uttered about me. Uh, that was my bottom, as they say, which, um, you know, made me after about 15 years, finally uh, go ahead and get treatment. When you went to the concert together? Yeah, yeah. She, yeah. Uh, I took her to a daddy-daughter concert, and I was all excited about it. And when we got back, uh, my wife asked her how it was. It was for an American Idol uh, singer. My wife asked yeah. her how it was, and she said daddy had, daddy had a lot of beers. And for some reason, that for me, thankfully, that was uh, what sort of stabbed me in the heart. And uh, a few days later, I checked myself into treatment, thankfully. But um, you, know, you never people that uh, are in or were in uh, addiction or alcoholism, no one ever knows what's going to make him hit that point, but that was it for me. You know, yes, and and I'm not sure where you want to start, but one of the things I'm thinking is, you know, there's a difference, there's different, I guess, stages. I'm thinking of it, alcohol abuse, alcohol dependence, and then alcohol addiction. Do you want to start there, or is there a, sure, a, a different sure. spot? Okay. That's, prob- that's probably a good place to start. And, um, you know, there the the disease is very similar throughout people throughout history. It's um, it's a progressive disease. And whether I'm talking about alcohol or drugs, it's uh, mm-hmm. they all they all progress. And then you start out, you know, you might start out a, a few days a week drinking beer. But those who actually become a true alcoholic, what what really changes is, is it becomes uh, instead of a desire or a want where you may want to have a beer, uh, you know, at a football game. It becomes a need where you yeah. where you have to have a beer at that football game, and you have to plan your outings around uh, restaurants with your wife that uh, that have beer, or you have to go to Dave and Buster's with your kids because you know they have six bars in Dave and Buster's. So it's really, in my mind, the best definition is when it turns from uh, uh, a want to a need, where it, where it overtakes you. And and what you're talking about too, I, I think for the non-addicted person, they might not be aware of that kind of subtext going on. Um, you know, organizing things like you said, going to even a sports game with your kids. You know, is there alcohol there, or do I need to to bring it somehow and hide it? You know, every outing, every event becomes centered around the planning. Will I be able to have access to alcohol? Correct. Yeah. That's exactly what happens. I, uh, you know, my my plan was pretty simple. It was a lot of. Have you ever noticed that Chuck E. Cheese has beer? And I think that's for a reason. Um, oh I have wow! A, uh, I'm working with a family and a close close friends of ours who uh, the the ex husband has a he, he's he's an alcoholic and um, he uh, a couple of months ago he went to a uh, a play practice or a play rehearsal with the, with his kids and obviously they don't serve uh, alcohol at a, at that um auditorium so he brought his own in got caught and um you know that's what that's what alcoholics uh, once that that switch goes on and you're an alcoholic and you're dependent on it that's what you do if you um if you can't go to a place where where there's alcohol that night you, you bring it with you and that's uh, it becomes normal for you yeah. And, and there's, you talk in your book too, about the genetic components of addiction and there's a neurotransmitter that fits perfectly with alcohol that makes it a, a need at like, like we need other, you know, um, neurochemicals and transmitters and stuff in our bodies that when that ad- addiction happens, it, it's truly, uh, becomes a disease like any other. 
disease. Yeah, I think the uh, obviously with your your practice, you you're very aware of this. Uh, some of the uh, um, scientific advancements in the last ten years have actually started to identify that the gene and the uh, the GABA receptor, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, that they believe is uh, is the link to genetic alcoholism. Of course, they're not close to figuring out how to how to work with that, but it's um, it's the science is getting very close to identifying exactly what the gene is. Um, you know, frankly, I don't think we as a society need science to, to tell us it's genetic. I mean, you know, back in the days of the cowboys, the grandpa was a drunk, dad was a drunk, son's a drunk. Um, it's it's uh, in families that have, have alcoholism, it's 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 common and well known throughout their uh, family in uh, that neighborhood. Wow. You know, I didn't know the GABA receptor was associated with alcoholism. I do know the GABA receptor is responsible for cocaine addiction and, and research. So it yeah, sounds I can, like. I can send you some of those articles, uh, uh, what they've identified as what they yeah. think is that, uh, is that part of the brain. I mean, cool. hopefully we'll be talking in, you know, hopefully we'll be talking in 10 years where there's a. Uh, there's some uh, medical treatment for that, but in the meantime, there isn't. So pre- prevention and education for the children that have that uh, hidden disease in their genes is probably the best we can do. So for our listeners that, that might be listening in, um, I have clients coming in, you know, before the holidays really get underway, talking about some of them have concerns about drinking too much at an office party. And, you know, these are people that have, they're on that spectrum of alcohol, you know, being abuse dependent, alcoholism, you know, alcoholism somewhere along that spectrum. So for our listeners, how might you help them identify where they could be on the spectrum of, of the addiction path? Um, yeah, that's a good question. And first of all, being uh, worried about, uh, being worried about how much you're going to drink at a company party or, or an event, probably, you know, probably means you're an alcoholic because um, mm-hmm. normal people don't worry about that. I always did, of course, or New Year's Eve, if I was going to pass out and embarrass my wife. Um, normal people don't worry about that. So that, that itself might be a sign that there's, there's, you know, you're recognizing um, that you, there's a likelihood you'll get out of control. Um, I, I really think it's, uh, um, the, again, the want and the need. But here's a, here's a, very, uh, here's a very interesting test that the, uh, the, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is sort of the Bible, in yeah. the recovery industry that was uh, in the late 30s or 40s was first made. Yes. There's a, uh, there's a the test in there. It says if you really want to test if you're an alcoholic, go to a bar, go to your local bar, each night have two beers and stop and see if you can stop for a couple of weeks. And uh, uh, a normal person can. I'm sure my wife can. But uh, mm-hmm. in my drinking days, there's no way I could stop at a bar with two, with two beers. I would, uh, maybe the first two nights I would. And then the third night I'd say, wow, this is silly. For me, I'm really six foot two, so I need four beers. Um, there's always an excuse to drink more. So really if whether you're drinking once a day or once a week, if, if once you have those first couple drinks, if you can't stop your drinking, that's really the sign that your brain, uh, that the disease in your brain has taken over. And you do a good job in your book talking about that bargaining process that you went through and other people with addictions go through of of trying to set these goals. Like I'll drink just on weekends or I'm going to have two drinks and stop. And just all the ways you try to bargain with yourself and the disease to um, still be able to drink. Can you speak some about that? 
Yeah, and every single alcoholic goes through this, and it's actually in that big book again. And it's, it, I, I counsel a lot of people. You know, there's uh, yeah, I'd say seventy percent of families that I know and through work or neighborhood or or whatever organization ha- they have somebody that needs help. So, talking with these people, every alcoholic goes through this. Whether it's, I'm no longer going to drink vodka. I'm only going to drink natural wine. I will only have two beers tonight, uh, I promise myself. Um, inevitably, you mean it at that time. You're no longer going to drink right. hard alcohol. You're not going to drink around your kids. I promise, honey, I'll, I won't drink when I'm traveling. But again, once that those first one or two beers or glasses of wine get in your head, that's all out the window. And, and it's... Uh, it's hard to explain for someone that doesn't understand it, but it's uh, that part of your brain just takes over, and the the, the good uh, the good angel and the bad angel that good angel loses every single time. Right, and in your book, your daughter does a good job, I think, to to talk about this from a from a younger person's perspective, what she observed you doing, and how she observed you acting, and the confusion around, um, you know, your anger and frustration and such. Can you talk some about that for listeners that have kids or even adolescents that might be listening? What are some things that you really want them to know? Yeah, well, first of all, for adolescents that are listening, it's not your fault. If your parents uh, drink or use drugs, it's a disease. No matter what you do, whether you get a bad grade or you yell at them or you, uh, you, know, you, you steal some candy or, or you do something wrong and they end up drinking over that, it's not your fault. It's a disease. The alcoholic always looks for a reason to drink. So, and it's, uh, it's not a spouse's fault either. It's a disease, and, and only the alcoholic can deal with it. But what I learned from actually reading that book, and every time I look back at it, is uh, it's, sh- it's shocking how much uh, my daughter and a little bit my son, although he was really young, how much they notice. Uh, mm. Because we alcoholics think we hide everything so well. And, you know, I do a lot of my drinking at night when the kids went to sleep. But she would notice things like, well, it's Saturday morning, Daddy's still sleeping. Or daddy doesn't want to play with us as much. He's just sitting on the couch. Or why are yeah. mommy and daddy fighting so loudly and, and frequently at night? So even though I was a fairly uh, you know, high-functioning alcoholic that didn't have some of the uh, traditional bottoms like jail and, and, and DUIs that others might have, she, kids notice. They, uh, you know, they, they, you're their role model, so when they see you hungover on a couch on a Saturday morning for four hours watching football, they notice that you're not, you know, you're not playing with them like a like a normal uh, like a normal parent does. And and they start putting the pieces together because kids are very perceptive and intelligent. And I think over time, without you know knowing this isn't their fault, they might start to think that they're unimportant. You know, their needs aren't important. That you know it can really affect their self esteem. You know, for the addicted parent to who typically becomes so wrapped up in themselves, that's a part of the disease, unaware of, of the needs of others around them, their spouse, their children, their family, their work. Um, and I know that's something you've addressed in your recovery is being accountable and being present and, you know, wanting to help. Yeah. And uh, alcoholics and drug addicts are they're rarely present. While they might be physically present, like I was, you know, I was still all the soccer games, I was a soccer coach, and uh, the carpools uh, most most of the time, unless it was real early in the morning. But uh, addicts are not present uh, emotionally, where where you might be sitting around having a uh, uh, a dinner, family dinner at Christmas or Thanksgiving. The uh, the alcoholics or addicts, their minds either in the past about their regrets 
Mm. Um, what they did for the drugs, what they did for the alcohol, they don't remember what happened the night before, or their minds in the future. Where, where, where am I going to get that drug? What am I, what am I going to drink tonight? How am I going to hide uh, my, you know, drinking this bottle of uh, vodka in front of my family here? Um, they're r- very rarely present in the communication and the, and the joy or even the, the, the fighting at the table. They're, they're, that was a concept I had to learn. Uh, actually, being present is a concept they taught in my rehab because it's so consistent with uh, addiction that alcoholics and drug addicts are never present. Right. Well, I think that the substance of choice, be it alcohol or drugs, becomes a companion, becomes a relationship that they have, you know, going on almost like an affair. If our listeners can conceptualize that, you know, it becomes a friend. It becomes an escape. It becomes how you cope. Would you agree? Yeah, I heard. Well, first of all, it's definitely how you cope. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's the alcoholic has one coping mechanism, whether it's uh, depression, anger. Joy, excitement, elation, you you still drink. You either drink to celebrate, drink because you're angry, drink because you're depressed, drink because you have anxiety. So actually after, you know, that's one of the big learning curves after you uh, get into sobriety is actually learning how to to cope like a normal person because you never develop those skills. Um, So I think think you're right on there. Yeah, when I work with um, people with addictions and their families, especially it it seems to help the the non-addicted, family members and and loved ones to to understand this in terms of that this is a relationship the person with yeah. an addiction has because it, yeah, it i think that, it makes it more understandable yeah i think that's a good analogy and i hear that a lot it was uh, you know it's hard to think about my own alcoholism in that manner but i hear when i interview a lot of people or, or watch interviews or talk to a lot of people they will describe um you know the uh, the pills as their uh, as their best friend or as their as their loved one, as their lover, the 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 pills are are their best friend, and you often see, I mean, almost every time someone gets laid into addiction or alcoholism, they start losing their friends, they start right. losing their their family, their wife and kids leave, and almost inevitably, if if it progresses, unfortunately, to the end, they almost inevitably end up alone, dead in a in a in a hotel room by themselves. So they're they they lose the, uh, the the real people in their lives and that that drug or that that bottle that it takes over. Yeah. So in your case, that was not the end of your story. Can can you tell us what your life was like before recovery and and after recovery? Yes, thankfully. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, before recovery, it's uh, it's I keep using the word progressive, but that's the best way to describe it. Where. You know, one one day you go, you join a fraternity at, at UCLA, and everybody's drinking, and you think it's a normal thing. And then after graduation, it seems like you and only a few others continue drinking every night. And then it's, it just sort of sneaks up on you. Nobody intends to be an alcoholic or drug addict. Nobody intends to, you know, lose their job and beg on right. the street for heroin. Um, but you know, people, normal people, get there, and it progresses to a point where it takes over your life. You know, it starts to ruin your life physically and emotionally and spiritually. And, um, you know, after recovery is about getting all of that back, getting physically well, getting emotionally well, being able to, uh, you know, being able to actually listen to your kids, talk to your wife, cry once in a while, uh, which is yeah. a, a new, you know, <laughs> uh, pray, not just for uh, uh, to avoid a DUI, but actually uh, get some spirituality in there. and uh, In your life. Yeah, so it's been, um, you know, being, 
people around me tell me all the time how much I've changed. Obviously, when it's you're the individual, it's hard to see that much change over uh, over time. But certainly, um, you know, it's been over seven years. Uh, oh, that's great. And, and and now trying to spread the message to to others that uh, may have been in my situation uh, uh, when I was 13, 15, with a family littered family tree littered with uh, alcoholics and addicts and. Uh, without some education and information, kids, kids like I, uh, I used to be, really don't have a chance. So we're trying to help others uh, you know, have a have a fighting chance against the disease. So this book, my dad is an alcoholic. What about me? This is for kids. So for our listeners um, to know, it's uh, we've had a lot of adults read it too. Let's put it that yeah. way. It's uh, it's it's uh, the most astonishing thing about promoting this book and writing it and talking to people and, and getting out there is how many families have somebody that is uh, currently an addict or alcoholic. And I mean like 75, 85% of people I run into even, uh, you know, church going people and uh, uh, Mormons in Utah where you would never think about that. But everybody, almost everybody has someone that, that needs some education. So uh, we have found that adults, uh, there's a lot of information in here about adult, uh, for adults but the main goal was to uh, destigmatize the disease for children, uh, preteens, teach them uh, what they need to know, and hopefully arm them with some information about peer pressure and uh, uh, the disease itself and maybe how they need to act a little bit differently to, to give them a much better chance uh, uh, to not become another statistic. Yeah, and I think it's an important uh, milestone. I have many clients who are parents come in and Lisa, I need to talk to my kids about uh, drug, sex and alcohol. What do I say? You know, so I think your your book is a great lead in for them to have some knowledge to be able to share with their kids the truth about addiction instead of them learning from their peers and yeah. peer pressure and where typically there's not any good or useful information there. So I think for parents to really be proactive and educating their kids about what they're going to encounter out there in, in certain social groups. Yeah, it's uh, uh, th- that is a good spot for it. We're actually going to start in the next year and talking at some schools, at some middle schools uh, to, to kids with addiction in their family and to other kids. Um, That's awesome. And I are, are going to do some uh, some talks and, and try to spread the word and, and, you know, some of the, the most satisfaction and the best feedback we've received from the book. Um, and it's, you know, quite frequently is, is kids, you know, we did, uh, one of my uh, son's classmates basically told us that this, this book is now an important part of their family because her dad's an alcoholic. She felt alone. Wow. She didn't know what to do. And, uh, we gave her a copy of the book a couple of weeks ago and it, um, seem to give her a lot of peace and uh, and also ammunition to to fight it because the uh, statistics are overwhelming. Um, if a uh, child uh, with a parent that's an alcoholic starts drinking before they're 15, um, they have a 20 up to a 20 times higher likelihood of becoming an alcoholic than a than their peer who doesn't. 20 times. That's uh, that's it's, so it's, significant. It's, it's daunting, um, and. I mean, I see it. I see it in my family and friends and uh, coworkers all the time. Where you know the uh, the parents recovered or not, that had a problem with drugs or alcohol, they don't they don't have that discussion with their kids. They don't. It's it's right. it's a hard discussion to have. My parents didn't have it with me, and my parents are great and very intelligent and very knowledgeable. But no one sat us down and said, "Hey, uh, almost all of your aunts and uncles are 
drug addicts or alcoholics, so you better watch out, and here's, here's, this, here's what you should look out for. And so that's a constant theme that uh, in the interviews I've done uh, with alcoholics uh, that have it in their genetics, that it wasn't a topic of conversation in their family, so we're trying to help with that. Yeah, and and my understanding of your upbringing, just so the listeners can have some contrast, is that there was not an active, uh, there wasn't someone with an active addiction, correct, in your family, that it was on your mom's side of the family, but there was not an alcoholic in your home. Is that accurate? Yeah, my mom was uh, one of the six six or seven siblings, and she was uh, she was the sober one. So if it's not even if it's not directly in your uh, in your household, it's it's clearly in your genetics. And then my you know my dad's from uh, uh, there's some heavy drinking on that side, not to the extent on my mom's side, but that combination together, uh, even though it's not directly uh, mother or father, it's still in your genes, and it's uh, it, it takes off as soon as that as soon as the gene is is fed, it, it takes off as uh, no different than if your mother, father, brother, and sister were all alcoholics. Yeah, and I just think that's an important piece for our listeners to note because I think we often think you have to grow up in the home with someone in active addiction to alcohol or drugs to have that gene or to be affected by it, and you don't. Like in your upbringing, that that was in your genetics, and then when you started drinking, it it progressed very quickly over, I think, 10 years. Is that correct? Yeah. 15 years? I started, it was 15 or 20 years. I started late too. I didn't even really drink in high school. Uh, it doesn't really matter when you start. Um, that gene can turn on. And, and even if you don't have it in your gene, in your genes, uh, you can, you can make it. I mean, you can still uh, turn on that. Uh, you can make the uh, disease uh, occur in your brain and then it is in your genes for your, uh, for your children and grandchildren. But um, yeah, it doesn't. It, it it can totally skip a generation. It's still in there. Just like think about blue eyes. Your grand, you know. Yeah, or red hair. Might have blue eyes. Yeah, doesn't have to. It doesn't. It doesn't vanish from the gene pool that quickly. I'm not. Uh, I don't think anybody knows exactly how many generations it would take. But uh, you know, trying to break the cycle with with my generation. Hopefully, uh, you know, a couple generations down the line, it's completely out of our uh, genetics. And and so in your situation, growing up in a home where there wasn't a parent actively drinking or using drugs, I grew up in a home with an actively alcoholic parent. And so it was really, you know, like seeing like watering down the wine, like trying to do all these things, you know, so this person might not yeah. get so intoxicated and the fear and the confusion and, you know, the resulting self-esteem issues. So So I know this, you know. I know addiction very well from experiencing it growing up in, in the home with an alcoholic and um, having to do the work myself to, you know, uh, have a healthy relationship to just myself and, and others. So I think your book is important to help kids make choices for themselves. Yeah, and certainly there's a lot of, there's a lot of organizations out there and people like yourself and and trauma that uh, children can, uh, you know, uh, incur from active alcoholics uh, in, in their family. This uh, this book is probably a supplement to that to not only help with the uh, the emotional uh, scars, but tell them a little bit about what's hit, what's in their genetics and and how they can uh, avoid the cycle. And unfortunately, I'm sure you've heard the story a million times uh, where the the child will say, well. I saw my both of my parents were drunks, and I said, I, I, I said, I'm never going to be like that. I'm never going to have a drink. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get fired like my dad was. And without some 
some help there, that that usually doesn't happen. They usually follow right. in the footsteps, and they're 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 in the same recovery group, or in, they're in the same uh, prison as the as their parent. So that makes me think of Marga. A few moments ago, you were talking about. Um, Oh, gosh. Okay, just escapes me. But having to do with an an alcoholic, a person who drinks because um, there's the genetic predisposition versus stress, emotional problems, and basically like environment versus genetics. Can you speak to some of that if there is a difference? Yeah, and there's been a lot of studies on that, uh, obviously, and it shows that each the environment and the genetics each have about a 50% uh, contribution to to the disease. I think the easiest way to put this is anybody that's listening here can become addicted to drugs or alcohol. And uh, I mean, uh, I don't know if you saw Lisa, but uh, last last year there were more overdoses on heroin than due to gun yeah. violence in this country. Yeah, and a lot of those people aren't, you know homeless they they started out having a back surgery and they were given pills and five years later their family left them and they're they're addicted to heroin but um mm-hmm. any any person with even without the disease in your genes can become an addict or an alcoholic it, it normally just takes a little longer um and there's reasons for that you'll hear uh you'll hear a lot of drug addicts um whose parents were addicts or grandparents say they the first time i I tried heroin. The first time I tried cocaine, or the first time I had that bottle of vodka, I knew I was hooked. You really never hear a, a, a you know a normal person say the first time I drank, I knew I was hooked. And right. the reason is the the brain the brain reacts a little bit differently. At least I'm sure you've seen the uh, there's uh, MRI images. Uh, yeah, I was I think, just thinking uh, that brain scans. Yeah, brain scans of uh, someone of an alcoholic that has two beers versus a normal person, and the, uh, the it lights up like activity. a Christmas tree. The addicted yeah, brain. The, yeah, I saw that in a rehab, and I was like, wow, that explains a lot. So an alcoholic that has a beer, the, the amount of brain activity and the amount of pleasure or, or whatever is produced is significantly higher than a normal person. Um, but any any person can quickly become addicted to uh, to alcohol, and I, I've heard people, normal per, people getting addicted to pills within, what, like 45 days? And, and mm. then it's a lifelong battle. Right. Yeah, the the non-addicted brain versus the addicted brain looks very different. And on on the brain scans, if people want to Google and research that, and even the non-addicted brain walking into the bar looks very different than the addicted brain walking into a bar, which lights up like Times Square, just thinking about that, or in drug-seeking behaviors, just thinking about how to get the cocaine or the pills or the heroin. You know, physiologically, the brain starts sending signals to the body anticipatory, you know, reactions happen. So it's a real different chemistry, brain chemistry going on in both types of individuals. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty powerful. And if you think about it, your, your brain controls everything. And even right. though you think you might be uh, very strong willed and I can, uh, you know, I can, I can do this homework tonight or I can, uh, I can run this marathon when your brain is acting against you and telling, and the disease is telling you to have that drink and producing all that pleasure and, and, and putting all of your thoughts into getting that drug or that drink, that is not a, that is not a good place to be in the disease. Uh, I mean, the disease almost always wins. Seeing the story of a opiate addict or an alcoholic uh, just quit on their own one morning because they, they know that they're, they have a problem is uh, few and far between. 
Yeah, and I'm thinking too the the destigmatization of addiction, which you mentioned earlier on in the show, and that your book addresses, I think is important as well because to the non addicted person, I think it's easy to judge one with an addiction, you know, not understanding the biological components, the brain chemistry that's happening there. And, you know, it can be perceived that person is just, is just weak. You know, they're a weak person. They're, you know, flawed in their personality. Can you speak to that and how you've had to maybe deal with that in your recovery? Yeah. I mean, that's a constant fear. Um, you know, I, I'm an you know I'm an executive in my company. When I had to go to rehab, that certainly was a fear. I I hear that talking to to people that have jobs and uh, or, or don't. Uh, they're worried about their family and the perception of their friends and family. And why why am I so weak to have to go to rehab? But as we try to teach children with the uh, this, you notice the front of our book has a peanut on it and a potato. Yeah, peanut and a potato. Yeah, we try to make the analogy, uh, and by the way, my son drew that with my wife, so it's a family book. Very um, cool. We make the analogy that, all right, so, uh, Lisa, I don't know if you have kids, but you know kids. I don't. Uh, yeah, okay. I have kids. Everybody with kids knows which kids in the classroom have, have a peanut allergy. And everybody mm. with kids knows, you know which kid on the baseball team has a peanut allergy, so you can't bring anything to the baseball, the Little League party with a peanut. You even know on Southwest Southwest Airlines, if one person has a peanut allergy, everybody knows because they serve pretzels. Um, yeah. Or you know, if you go to a party as a as a preteen and your your mom tells the other mom there's a peanut allergy, don't have peanuts in the house. Well, how about the kid with uh, addiction in the genes that has an allergy to uh, to alcohol, mm-hmm. which we we try to represent with the potato, which obviously makes vodka. Uh, to right. Make it a little more. Uh, uh, likable uh, character and understandable, uh, relatable to the kids. What about that kid? Why is it that when he goes to a, you know, a bar mitzvah or a party, what, no one's looking out for him? Or how come nobody in his class, how come the parents in his class don't talk about, hey, we might not want to give him a beer. He shouldn't have a beer. He has an allergy uh, to alcohol. So it's, right. it's really no different. It's a disease. It's something in your genetics or, or you know, it, it, you develop it uh, by using too much alcohol or, or, or pills or, or drugs. But at that point, it's a disease that you need to treat. There's no shame in it. Um, and uh, we, we, try to, we try to tell kids and adults that um, to help them talk about it. So they talk about it at the dinner table. So maybe they talk about it with their teachers. Or as you mentioned earlier, Lisa, uh, you know, as they talk about it more in uh, – in the sex ed classes or, or when they're talking right. to their kids, um, not only about drugs, but people with a special predisposition to this problem. Yeah. And for our listeners, Mark's website, it's really cool. It's potatoallergy.com. And it's the website's about helping break the cycle of family addiction. There's an amazing blog where there's some uh, questionnaire inventory type things related to, um, let me find it. Where is something that struck me about how do you know if you're married to an alcoholic warning signs, um, children of alcoholics, the forgotten ones, educating kids on addiction before it's too late. And then again, you mentioned a few moments ago about the epidemic with pain pills in our country and with um, the overprescription of these really powerful medications that I work with a lot of clients that have opiate addictions, uh, benzo addictions, 
and and just how um, powerful those pills are to to change someone's life for the worst. And um, it's just wow, it's it's such a huge issue that that we're facing in America. Yeah, and you know, I wrote a blog on this. Uh, uh last week and I was a little bit angry when I wrote it because it's a little frustrating if you think about it opiates have been around for 200 years there was a there was a war about opiates uh, uh, 200 years ago and that's still the painkiller we use so we're, our country and our society is still relying on a painkiller developed from the same plant that makes heroin and that we know is addictive and that's still what we're giving people that has their have their wisdom teeth come out it's uh it's a little frustrating that we can have self-driving cars and uh, a telephone on our wrist, yet we're still relying on a painkiller that we know is addictive. So that's that was my and that would be some, rant on a blog. Yeah, that would be something like Vicodin, you know, that's so prescribed so regularly and easily for just the slightest, you know, injuries um, when you're snow skiing or just various things that you know doctors prescribe it so readily and op- yeah oftentimes people don't know how addictive it is and you also raise in your book an issue that i i deal with and working with my clients with any kind of addiction if they have to have surgery going to the dentist even becomes an issue and how if someone's not really invested in their personal recovery it's so easy to slip have a relapse have you know, their lives start to fall apart again because they don't tell their doctor, hey, I'm I'm in recovery, I'm recovering. Some doctors even like, oh, it's okay, a little Vicodin won't hurt you. You know, so exactly. you have to be really an advocate for yourself, you know, to get non, um, like, opiate or benzoid-type medications, you know, and, and go with Tylenol or things where you might be in a bit more discomfort, but it's not going to activate your addiction again. You couldn't... You're exactly right, and I've had that personally, where I had a, a minor surgery, and I told the doctor three or four times that I don't want opiates, and I told him why, and we discussed my history. Uh, yet after the surgery, that was the prescription he gave me, and I handed it back to him, and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with some Tylenol. Um, I know someone in my family, in fact, that uh, it was in recovery and relapsed at the dentist with nitrous oxide. Yeah. Um, that can also trigger those, those same receptors. So, yes, when you... And we talk about this in the book. When, when you are in recovery or even when you're just, uh, I think this should apply to everybody, to be honest, but especially when you have, um, when you're potatoes, we call it, when you have the genetic predisposition, watch out for pills. You know, just because you have, uh, you, you break your ankle and the doctor gives you a, a bottle of uh, Vicodin or Oxycontin or, or Dilaudid, I've seen sometimes, which is basically heroin. Okay, um, yeah. In a pill. Um, you got to watch out because the doctors are not vested in your recovery. Their job, um, you know, it's not always their fault. Uh, their job is to, to treat the pain. If you have an addictive personality, are in recovery, or have it in your genes, yes, it's very important that you have to manage that yourself. And if you really need the pills, I had one uh, counselor um, at the rehab I went to who had seven major back surgeries after being hit wow. by a car on a freeway. So Tylenol doesn't cut it for him. But when he has surgeries, he actually has someone hold his pills. And remember, yeah. he's a counselor at rehab, but this is how powerful they are. He has someone yeah. hold his pills, and uh, it gives him one pill every four hours. Wow. So you can ask for help is what I hear you saying. Yeah. you got to ask for help. The, the number one cause of alcoholics relapsing is pills because just like you said, they'll have back surgery. Everybody has surgery when they get over, older. They get knee surgery, appendix, whatever it is. And, or you twist your ankle. 
you know, and go to yeah. the urgent care. Oh, yeah. And and that'll that's easily offered to you, you know, to help oh. with the pain. <laughs> yeah, my my sister who who's sober now, she was uh she was very successful going to urgent care and getting whatever pills she wanted based on some injury or fake injury. Um yeah, you have to you have to be responsible for your own what goes in your own body and it's a very it's a very tricky situation because most people think, well the doctor gave it to me, I should take it. Um, right. Because we look up to doctors in, in our culture, you know, so we look to a doctor and family members often do. And I think, again, you spoke earlier about denial in the very beginning of our show. And for family members of addicts, it can be hard to make sense of what's going on because often if the, the person seeing a doctor or getting a prescription from a doctor, how can that be addiction? It's coming from a medical professional, you know, and covered by insurance. So it looks like it's okay when it's it, might not be it's almost in, in my experience it's almost impossible for family members to really understand recognize and know how to deal with addiction because the addicts are so smart they that's the thing they tell their parents or their their co-workers or their boss or their spouse and hey, then prescribed too. i'm fine yeah it's what the addicted person tells themselves as well correct yeah, true Oh yeah, or <laughs> the addict or the alcoholic tells himself a lot of a lot of things that to a normal person are crazy. I, I remember one thing. Um, I was traveling when I really realized I was an alcoholic. It, uh, okay. I landed in t- Texas, and they don't sell beer on Sundays or alcohol. It's a dry it's a dry county there. So after that, I just began uh, packing alcohol in my suitcase, mm-hmm. which to a normal person sounds pretty crazy, but to the alcoholic, that was simply just you know telling myself that's what I needed to do because of these strange laws. So, yeah, you're, you, you tell yourself, think, you have justification to yourself. Uh, you're not as bad as the, the guy in the street. You're doing fine. Who cares if you're taking ten times the prescription pills that your doctor uh, prescribes? He doesn't, know, he doesn't know your body. You're right. You're, you tell yourself those things. Right. Or like you said, your X, you know, height, X weights, you know, two beers, that might be for somebody that's up. 110 pounds, but not for me, just the, the bargains, the deals you start to make with yourself to, to keep you in that place of harming yourself, basically. Yeah. That was almost every night in my life. I would uh, tell myself I was only going to have two beers, three beers, not going to drink at all. And after those first two beers, I would always have a really good reason to have the next five. Right. So what, what role did knowing about the addiction gene help you to recover, Mark? At what point did you kind of start putting those pieces together? Unfortunately, I didn't know about it like I should have. And that sounds crazy, but we really don't. Um, It it just opened my eyes after recovery. But what it did for me is it got rid of all the shame and guilt. That was all, it all vanished. Oh, that's awesome. The first day I started to read about and see the, you know, how your brain, the MRI in the brain and how you're 20, you know, five to 20 times more likely if your dad's and parents are alcoholic. All the shame and guilt for everything I did uh, the last 15 years, it just went out the window, and it hasn't come back since, thankfully. And that actually was replaced almost immediately with the desire to make sure other kids knew about this, uh, especially my kids, um, you know, not in rehab, but actually before the disease started. Okay. And then what, what role did your family play in your recovery? How were they? Um, you know, they've been great. Um, they were there uh, I went to rehab here in my home state, city of San Diego. They mm-hmm. would visit me every day. It's a great reminder of why you're doing it. Oh, this. that's awesome. Yeah. 
Um, and, and you know, you got to do it for yourself, but it's real, it's really powerful to have a reminder of little kids and a wife and, and other people that care about you. Cause it's a hard thing getting sober. So they were there every day visiting me during visiting hours. Um, obviously they've, uh, you know, helped me write a book about the subject. So they're yeah. very open about it. Uh, at one of my AA meetings where I got a five year birthday, they came and cut the cake and handed it out. So they've been, uh, They've been involved. Certainly, they're not the experts, uh, so I need to rely on others for the uh, the direction. But they've been involved and some and supportive, which is important. That is important. So you're not, you know, you're you're supported and loved while you're going through such a major shift and change. Yeah, and it's it's a hard thing for uh, for a spouse or children to do. Um, yeah, it's uh, they they don't understand it. They can't understand it. Thankfully. Um, and there's a lot of times, you know, that, that, that mom or dad is at, is at a recovery meeting for four times a, uh, a week for a while, or, you know, he's at rehab for 30 days. So it's a, it's a hard thing to cope with. Um, uh, but being supportive is, is definitely important because there's, there's days where every addict or alcoholic wants to give up and, uh, you know, seeing your, your kids looking at you is a, is a nice reminder of why you might want to stay on that path. I hear you. You know, I also want to highlight something you said a few moments ago about when you learned about the the part genetics play, that's what allowed you to access forgiveness for yourself. And I think forgiveness is such a cornerstone in, in so much and so much healing I'm, I'm learning. And I think for someone with an addiction, there is so much blame and self-loathing Um and feeling weak, even powerless, et cetera. And I think being able to forgive yourself for how you've hurt yourself and how you've hurt others, you know, like is such an important piece of recovery and to stay sober, to stay clean, to stay healthy. It's really about, I think, having a lot of compassion for oneself and those around you. And you're absolutely right. And it's one of the first things you have to do. And uh, it's not a coincidence that admitting you're powerless over alcohol or drugs is the first step on, you know, the famous 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. It's not a coincidence that the first step that you have to get to before you have to take care of before the other 11 is you're admitting you were powerless. So that helps with some of the guilt and shame. And you just realize that you're really not in control of this. And I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of people die of this to this day where, you know, people I'm trying to help or talking to where they're, they end up dead. And that's something they, uh, they, they they can't get rid of the guilt and the shame and uh, what they've done to their kids or their uh, their coworkers or themselves and uh, without that I'm sure you know as a as a professional therapist that that guilt can you know that that'll eat you alive right so I think that the forgiveness piece is important to initially and ongoingly I also think that at times you know changing your your people places and and your mindset are important that you might not be able to go to some of the same places that could yeah. be triggering for you you might not be able to have some of the same friends you know so it's adopting a, a new mindset and how you interact with your world yeah would it's, you it's, would you agree yeah oh, I totally agree it's a it, it's a change of your life I mean it's uh, alcohol was my only coping skill, and it was involved in my life every night for uh, and every day for for 15 years. You have to change a lot of things. I, I can say though that sounds very uh, intimidating and daunting. It's 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 much better on this side. You know, the few friends and only a few. I mean, maybe a couple out of a uh, hundred friends and coworkers. Okay. That that, that I that 
that have a, had a problem with me uh, getting sober, they're they're heavy drinkers themselves. You're not you're not losing your good friends, your good friends and coworkers and clients and relatives. Uh, most of them will give you a hug and, and say, "I'm proud of you." My my other right. friend uh, is still in the throes of heroin addiction or died. So it's uh, it's a daunting task, but it's all it's all in a positive uh, in a positive light. Yes. So the last question I like to ask every guest, and I'm as I look at your website. Uh, potatoallergy.com. I'm, I'm thinking this might be a part of, of your answer, but what is it that you would like to leave, Mark, in your work, in your recovery, in your struggle and journey, you know, to being where you are now? What is, what's important for you to, to leave? It's important for me to spread the message that I think our uh, society and recovery neglects, that it's not, a, it's not your fault. If you have it in your genes uh, and you need to treat it just like you have a peanut allergy and there's certain things you need to know um, before you get to the drinking age and our, it needs to be an open discussion in our society, um, just like a kid with diabetes in his genetics, those with alcoholism or addiction in the genetics need to know about it when they're children. It needs to be talked about um, and, and there's hope. There's, uh, you know, half the world never drinks. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's, there's hope in an easy way. There's an easy way for those children rather than how most of them uh, live their lives now and uh, uh, start battling the recovery rather than the prevention. Awesome. And just again, for our listeners to check out potatoallergy.com, there's cool like little bracelets um, with the and potato free. and the peanut. Oh, oh, cool. Oh, they're free. Yeah. Sweet. The, uh, the kids like wearing them. Uh, and the yeah. kids aren't, already, aren't even old enough, like the little potato character, and the kids that are old enough think it's pretty cool and uh, help, helping them to, uh, to not be ashamed of, uh, of their genetics. But I think it's a great paired association, you know, peanut allergy and then potato allergy to start making that comparison early on, you know, to destigmatize alcoholism, that it's, it can be as simple as an allergy and you avoid it like you would peanuts or whatever else you're allergic to. Yeah, I think it's something very easy for children to relate to, and it's uh, it's been pretty successful because every kid knows a friend with a peanut allergy. Uh, yeah. So to relate to that, since that's so wide, uh, well known in our society, is uh, is a good way to describe it to your children or even adults that have uh, have a problem. So listeners can get your book, My Dad is an Alcoholic, What About Me, on BarnesandNoble.com and Amazon.com. Correct. That's right, and there's links on the uh, potatoallergy.com website to buy it. Um, I see that. All, all the money goes back into educating kids, and you can also follow us on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. My, uh, although Instagram is something my kids use. Uh, right. I know it's very popular, so we, uh, we do that as well. Oh, good. I'll add you to my Twitter and Facebook as well. Is it under potatoallergy.com? It I can is. access it. Through. Oh, sweet. Do the, the cute little potatoes there on the, uh, on the social media yeah, site. I do. Well, thank you for being my guest today, Mark Treitler. I really appreciate your time. It was my pleasure. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Good day. You too. That concludes our show for today. Please join me next week as I bring you another guest to interview on All Things Therapy. Bye-bye. You're listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir.